1: G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy, and historical radio for episode number 1289, entitled The Rest of the Roberts. A podcast title is The Naked Pod. I am R. Jan.
0: And Solarian Megan McHugh.
1: <laughs> so we've got a bunch of things to get through today on Zero G, including a look at Isaac Asimov's novel, The Naked Sun, which is one of his robot books. Yes, but first I have the sad duty to report upon the death of Mervin Merv Binns, uh, the former owner of Melbourne's Space Age, science fiction and fantasy bookshop. Merv was born on the eighth of July in nineteen thirty-four and died recently on the seventh of April. Now, Space Age was the major genre bookstore for the city of Melbourne, and I believe the first specialist science fiction bookstore in Australia, which was open from the early 1970s until mm, 1985, first in Elizabeth Street and then down in Swanston Street, opposite the uh, the Straight State Library just about, which is where I first happily encountered it and thereafter spent many a pleasant hour raiding its very well-curated shelves. Now, fans of a certain age will have entire bookshelves full of titles purchased from Space Age over the several decades that it was open, and Merv Binns was also one of the early members in 1952 of the Melbourne Science Fiction Club, which operates to this day. They also held meetings upstairs at Space Age, at least for a time. Merv was additionally instrumental in the local appreciation of genre cinema, with the Melbourne Fantasy Film Group. He was also one of the moving forces behind the very first World Science Fiction Convention that was held in Australia, Aussiecon. For his many services to Australian fandom and for his lifelong encouragement of local genre content, Merv deservedly won pretty much all of the local fan awards that were possible to win. Merv Bins is survived by his wife Helena, who is also a noted local fan identity. Our sincere condolences to Helena. Merv was a good fan and a good man, and he shall be sadly missed. Well, one of the books that I would have found at Space Age Bookshop back in the day was Isaac Asimov's The Naked Sun, which is the second book in his. Which is the second book in his series of robot novels about the two policemen in the future: uh, a robot R. Daniel, and a human, Elijah Bailey. They're basically, uh, what do they call it in the book? Uh, a C-fe combination, that as in uh, carbon and Ferris. Now, Megan started us out looking at The Caves of Steel, which is the first book in the series, and now we're looking at The Naked Sun, which we're finding particularly relevant to the pandemic. Now, it came out in uh, 1957 and was serialised originally in Astounding Science Fiction. This is the latest edition that Megan's got.
0: Yes. So, as um, Rob mentioned, I reviewed, we sort of started our discussion with the first book in the trilogy, Caves of Steel, and that was my very first Asimov that I'd ever read. And, <laughs> and um yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. It's, as Rob mentioned, it's this kind of science fiction detective hybrid, and that was immediately sort of captivated me. And then, so yes, I moved on to The Naked Sun, had a little dig around in that. And for me personally, I actually liked it even more than the first one. So, I'm definitely keen to check out The Robots of Dawn, which is the last in the trilogy. Um, but I think the most interesting thing to chat about in regards to this book, is yeah, kind of the world that it takes place on, and just how pertinent it is thematically in terms of kind of what we're all experiencing at the moment. So, yeah, I mean, apart, there's this core detective partnership, but I guess, should we delve into sort of some rough details? Well,
1: what edition have you got there, Megan?
0: Oh yes, so I've got the latest um, it looks like they've done a nice little reprint series so this is a Harper Voyager um, edition and this one sort of came out only a couple of years ago so they've redone these covers in this nice purple and yellow kind of um, illustration design and yeah it's a nice little set so it looks like that they'll probably have released all of his works in sort of a nice little little edition like this so. That's the one that I've got. And what one have you got there, Rob? The
1: 1984 Omnibus from Octopus
0: Books. I have to say it's pretty impressive. Like Rob held it up to me through our call and I was uh, pretty, uh, yeah, pretty chuffed by it. That one looks like a real doorstop. That's that's the three, all three? Sure is. Actually, it's the proverbial
1: blunt instrument that you could use to do in the Solarian by the fireplace. <laughs> Exactly. It's actually not uh, just The Naked Sun. Oh. Being an omnibus, it's got uh, The Foundation, Foundation and Empire, Second Foundation, The Stars Like Dust, which is a a standalone novel, I think, Uh, The Naked Sun, and the book of short stories, I, Robot, as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is, of course, what The Naked Sun is. It is a, a murder mystery and a science fiction murder mystery so it's set in space. and as you may remember, the human detective Leija Bailey was uh, living on earth in the far future in the caves of steel, a vast megacity. In fact, he came from uh, the New York New York one, an NYPD detective from Brooklyn 99. <laughs> Or well, the equivalent of that in the future. And he has all of the uh, prejudices and the the phobias of a human being who's living in this vast, crowded city. It's not a dystopia exactly, not really, but it does have its own sort of feeling
0: of being shut in. I think that comes through in the novel for sure. <laughs>
1: and earth humans at that time, they can't really go outside under the sky because they're agoraphobics.
0: Yeah, they've become so accustomed to these kinds of burrows and caves of steel that they live in that it's sort of a protective layer that they can't even comprehend a life out in the open or to even be in the open in a lot of senses um, without that kind of protective barrier between them and the air. It's very interesting the attitudes that Asimov kind of brings out about the Earthmen uh versus some of the spaces or the other beings that live in these other worlds that are advanced in a different way and face different positives and negatives and different troubles uh, that come with, maybe while earth is quite overpopulated, um, we visit a world in this novel that's quite underpopulated, you could say, and is kind of the opposite in a lot of ways to the kind of earth environment that Lige is used to on in his New York City kind of lifestyle. Um, and so it's pretty, I thought that in addition to being science fiction and also detective, this definitely had some very interesting notions around sociological kinds of themes or ruminations i guess you could say which i found quite interesting actually and quite um i really liked how he kind of explored that and used that as part of the novel like what this society drawing what this society would be like based on how they live
1: hello i'm ray harryhausen animation pioneer you're listening to 0g on 3triple r fm a word from another grand master of science fiction and fantasy, there, Ray Harryhausen. Just letting you know that you are indeed listening to Zero G on Free Triple R FM with Rob Jan and Megan McHugh. We're talking about the Naked Sun, Isaac Asimov's sequel to his book The Caves of Steel. Interestingly enough, Isaac Asimov himself had extreme acrophobia and aviophobia. So he didn't like heights or flying. Yes. I think thereafter, the plot, the plot revolves around the Liege Bailey having to go off into space, essentially to Solaria, the planet where... It's where the spaces have their loose collection of colonies, which all owe their genesis to Earth originally, and now they're all independent. And Solaria has robots... Lots and lots of robots, their positronic brains, with their free laws of robotics built into them, in their heads, governs all of their behaviour. Now, Daniel, the robot, doesn't feature quite so much in this story as he did in the first one. He sort of gets benched for a bit.
0: Yes. So he's the robot partner to Lige Bailey, who's the sort of human detective, and yeah, he He doesn't feature as much and he certainly doesn't have as much of a crucial role in kind of uncovering the core mystery, but he does have an interesting role to play, I guess, in some of the discussions around the ethics or the the laws of robotics and what robots can and can't do and things like that. So I think he plays a bit of a thematic role, but you're right, he really doesn't have as much to do in this one.
1: Uh, But that's kind of... Built into the plot in this case, Mm. because this planet Solaria, like I said, twenty thousand human inhabitants for the whole world, and each of those humans have, they estimate, uh, twenty thousand robots at their beck and call. Everybody lives on vast estates that are isolated, and they live alone. If they do actually happen to be married, they hardly ever encounter their husband or wife. In their vast mansions. Exactly.
0: Yes, they don't see, in inverted commas, each other, which is to be in person in real life, but they will use a kind of communication virtual system that it's like they're together but not physically present.
1: Yes, it's called tridimensional viewing.
0: Mm, Viewing versus seeing,
1: yeah. They've actually got a bit of a phobia in fact, quite a strong phobia about, about seeing people in the flesh.
0: Mm. And that's I think that's what was interesting and sort of one of the core things, obviously, that is sort of speaks of the times at the moment is they're very isolated. The only way of interacting is this tri um, trimensional system. And whenever there is sort of an in-person thing, there's a very much big thing on distance and not getting close and contamination. And I thought that was really interesting to read sort of at a time like this. Um, just kind of a little, I had a little chuckle about sort of some of the stuff he was writing in this future society.
1: Yeah. There's lots of nose
0: filters and gloves and yes, exactly. And sort of repulsion at being close to another human within six feet or, or what, what have you up
1: (laughs) well let's have a track here Uh, and this is actually just called Asimov (laughs) which I think is entirely appropriate the thing about this particular track is that uh, it's by a guy called Isaac Riley so we'll go into this one now oh this is me right Oh, right, voiceover time. I've asked their mateys, this is Captain John English and you'll be listening to Zero G on the
0: 3 FM Pirate radio, har har, beware of cheap pirate copies.
1: As the robot pirates say, Jolly Roger, Jolly Roger, back in the studio after a track called As a Molve, which is just by Isaac Riley from the album Robots.
0: Ah, a quite fitting track.
1: I wonder... Is this one of those things where, you know, the artiste, the musician in this case, has been – he's named Isaac. So you're wondering if he started getting into Isaac Asimov novels because of that, or maybe his parents were fans?
0: Yeah, like – and that's where the name came from. Um, yes, we are, of course, talking about The Naked Son, the second in Asimov's robot trilogy, follow-up to The Caves of Steel, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, so we're talking robots and – distancing in the future.
1: (laughs) Yes, because it takes place on a world called Solaria, where everybody lives in individual mansions on vast, isolated estates. And just as in the Caves of Steel, where the humans couldn't conceive of an earthman from the crowded cities of the title, crossing over the country to commit a murder, so in this one, we can't conceive of anyone physically being in the presence of another human to kill the Someone So, leaving the only obvious suspect as, well, spoilers.
0: No, because, of course, the joy in these detective stories is, of course, the mystery and then the great reveal at the end. Um, and I say I really – these stories kind of deliver on that um, and really play to that core, I guess, formula, but in a really pleasing way, along with the added sci-fi stuff, which I thought I definitely – I really enjoyed Caves of Steel, but I loved the world building in this. I thought, kind of those explorations and sort of the discussion of the people on Solaria and the differences between them and what Lige was kind of finding. I really liked all that exploration almost as much as the the who done it aspect.
1: Speaking of who done it, it does remind me of a bit of a, a Doctor Who serial called The Robots of Death so tom baker era it also has implications about the uses and abuses of the robots in the future and it also reminds me a little bit of midsummer murders too because <laughs> there are a couple of murders in this one <laughs> which is the usual sort of quota for midsummer and i also thought that the pandemic isolated aspect wouldn't get very far on solaria because because ultimately these people are extremely socially isolated. There are some interesting other things that pop up in here. Bailey tends to call the robot uh, boy, which is very much a diminutive, possibly with racial overtones, which Asimov would have been very sensitive to, but which he deliberately used to give emphasis, because of course he has an immigrant background himself in the US from, from Russia, and a Jewish family, and so these books were started in the 1930s, late 1939. So he does delve into some very controversial issues like eugenics, which echoed on through the, the 20th century, mm. and you can tell that he doesn't approve too much of the space's completely biologically engineered civilization.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's It's kind of interesting the different yeah, kind of big ticket topics that crop up here. And then you sort of think to, okay, what time was he writing this in? And it's even more fascinating that those are some of the things he focused on and kind of wove into the story.
1: Mm. When we were talking about the Caves of Steel, we were saying that Isaac was fairly careful not to have too many bits of datable technology so that the stories would echoing into the future without dating too much. But I did notice a couple of ones in this one. So there's like scrolling newspaper strips. So they're like little piano scroll type things.
0: So he's kind of thought of like a microfiche kind of thing and then just kind of added to it. But it's, it's still very old-timey, but like a futurist view of old-timey. Yeah,
1: now it feels like retrofuturism. And, and the robots are clearly running on what we would call Wi-Fi. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about what kind of network this would be. But, I mean, it goes to show that he's some of the ideas here, he's ahead of his time because he's thinking of these concepts. Um, I will say the one thing I realised in this book that was in the last book, it's not a big thing, that does date it is that it, we're in the future and he's Lige a pipe smoker. He smokes from a pipe, but no one, no one does that now, let alone centuries in the future. I mean, who knows? Everything that's popular comes back again. So maybe pipe smoking gets big again in the year 3000 or something.
1: But did you notice that nobody else is smoking a pipe in the story?
0: That's true. That's one of his quirks, isn't it? And I'm wondering if
1: there's a bit of a Sherlock Holmes thing running there.
0: Maybe. Maybe it's definitely, I like it as a detail. I think, I definitely don't think it should be removed by any means. But. <laughs> oh, and another funny thing, because the robots
1: are all kind of, self-contained with their communications. They can communicate between each other. Uh, the humans don't actually carry phones or anything like that. If the humans want to view another human being, they get the robot to set up the communications channel for them.
0: Mm, exactly. And they do talk a bit about obviously having some everything at your whim and you don't have to want for anything and kind of, you know, they don't know any different, but the it's kind of a empty, (laughs) empty life, really, I would think. But yeah, it's interesting, some of the things you think about. Okay,
1: so I recommend the book The Naked Sun. It's obviously a quick read. Absolutely, very quick. There's only a few hundred pages in there. But of course, if you open yourself up to the larger world of Asimovian publications, there's there's a billion his novels are, are like the stars, like dust. There's so many grains on the beach.
0: Exactly. <laughs> you definitely have opened a whole world for me, Rob, I will say, um, having read these on your recommendation. Uh, yeah, I really, I've been loving them. So I think I, I will be opening the door to many more an Asimov doorstop novel. Or
1: <laughs> um, Now, one of the things that, these two novels that I, I thought that the the characterisation of the women in it was pretty much of the time, um, which is what it is, and if you want to find more about Asimov's books with some greater female characters, you'll... Encounter Dr. Susan Calvin, the robo psychologist in Asimov's short stories collected in iRobot, which feature her.
0: I think I'll probably, there's one more book in this trilogy, The Robots of Dawn, and then I'll probably look at some of his robot stories. He's got a couple of other novels in there, so I'll probably, or collections, I guess. So I'll check those out as well.
1: If memory serves me, there's also uh, R. Danielle and um, Bailey short story kicking around too Oh fun okay that was a bit of a an in-depth look at Isaac Asimov's the Naked Sun the sequel to the Caves of Steel and you'll find that the later novels plug into his foundation series as well Now I'm going to play a track here which is actually Isaac Asimov himself <laughs> Ooh, okay. He's being introduced by another interviewer. It's called Introducing Asimov. So it's from 1975. So here he is, Isaac Asimov himself, in conversation with Cy Borgen.
0: I'm Scott Westerfeld, author of Peeps and series Leviathan, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 FM.
1: A track called Introducing Asimov, it's from an album recording a 1975 interview between Mr. Cyborgen. Hmm. Cyborgen? Cyborg? <laughs> anyway, he was interviewing science fiction grandmaster author Isaac Asimov back in the day. Now, still more sad news to report in a year that's become a veil of tears. Tim Brooke Taylor of The Goodies has died this year of covid-19 related complications i believe
0: oh that's a, that's a real shame
1: so let's commemorate his life and times with the theme from the iconic comedy show the goodies of which tim Brooke taylor was one of the three stars and this is from the goodies the yum yum album hello this is bob cat goldthwaite and you're listening to 3 triple rfm melbourne the main title theme of the British comedy sketch show The Goodies, starring Tim Brooke taylor Graham Garden and Bill Oddy and the album was The Goodies, the Best of the Goodies, the Yum Yum album. Played that to commemorate the life of Tim Brooke taylor Timothy Julian Brooke taylor OBE, very important in the context of The Goodies, fans will know was born on the 17th of July in 1940 and died on the 12th of April this year of COVID-19-related complications. An English comedian and actor, he became active in performing in comedy sketches while at the University of Cambridge. So he was best known as the uh, the actor from The Goodies, but he was also very well known for whole large body of work in the strictly audio section of genre uh, with shows like I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue I'm Sorry I'll Read That Again lots of I'm is actually there and he was often working together with friends that he'd made in the Cambridge University years like Graham Chapman and John Cleese and of course Garden and Oddie along the way so there was a, another string to Tim Brook-Taylor's bow, Beyond the Goodies. He was heard in the Doctor Who audio story, The Zygon Who Fell to Earth, which was one of those big Finnish productions back in 2008. And he played opposite the uh, the eighth Doctor, Paul McGann. And I think Brooke taylor was a Zygon alien in that one, um, taking the shape of a human So, the goodies themselves ran from 1970 to 1982. There was a bit of a revival later. It was a pretty iconic show. Lots of books um, span off from it and stage show as well as other media properties that uh, were, were related to it. I also knew Tim Brooke Taylor. From some very small performances uh, in terms of uh, cameos almost in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where he was uncredited but did play a computer scientist uh, and also in the Monty Python, um, The Secret Policeman's Other Ball. He was also the voice of Cacophonics which is the uh, the bard who they never really let finish a song in the Asterix series, and that was in 1989. And I think he also appeared in um, Banana Man, an animated series, a superhero series of sort, where uh, he was um, playing opposite Graham Garden, one of his mates from The Goodies, of course. The Goon Show, Monty Python, the goodies—they're all kind of related with a, 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 a cast of, um, of actors and writers. And Tim Brooke Taylor was a writer as well of uh, comedy sketches, all sort of flowing backwards and forwards and around and about in that particular era of classic British comedy, from you know from the the, the late 50s through to the 80s and so on. <laughs> I kind of first heard him with the Goodies series, and if you're a fan of a certain age, <laughs> you'll remember that was part of a block of television shows on ABC with Doctor Who and, and Monkey occasionally, and all of those kind of uh, munged together, so you could hardly avoid hearing about the Goodies back in the day. Just to return to his, his radio work... Uh, I'm sorry, I'll read that again. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I will read that again now. It's um one of those shows that was a game show and that British did a lot of those related shows, My Word, My Music.
0: Is it like something like kind of a whose line is it anyway type of thing?
1: Yeah, close to that. So, yeah, sad to hear of the death of... Tim Brooke Taylor from the Goodies comedy show uh, where he was just usually known as Tim, aspirant to the OBE, which of course he did
0: achieve in real life. I reckon there'll be a lot of rewatches of the Goodies cropping up everywhere um, on a sort of, I think that's sometimes a nice thing that if when someone passes, everyone's like, oh, I really did love that series. You're going to delve into it again or spurs some kind of re-watches and reappreciation.
1: I'm pretty sure there will be, Megan. Now, in memoriam of Mr. Brook Taylor, we played the uh, the goodies theme before. And now I'm going to give you a another track here, which is uh, exploring his comedic talents. It's from an album called Top Cat, White Tie and Tails, a guidebook for the blind. And he's basically running a series of puns about writers called The author's story. (laughs) (laughs) That
0: that gave me quite a few chuckles.
1: (laughs) You're back listening to Zero G on Free Triple R FM. And that was Tim Brooke Taylor reading a story called The Author's Story and handing out the punishment as he went. From Top Cat, White Tie and Tails, Guide Cats for the Blind, Volume (laughs) 2. Now, moving over to a Netflix streaming show. (laughs) Gosh, streaming. Where would we be without it in the current circumstances?
0: I know. We've got more streaming services than we can sort of count on one hand, but thank goodness.
1: Now, this is Wonder Woman Bloodlines.
0: Mmm, I I don't... Don't know anything about this, so I'm quite curious.
1: Hmm. It's uh, an animated movie. I'll tell you that up front, 2017. It came out, obviously, it's a DC animated one, so it's part of what they call the DC animated universe, which, as we all know, is generally much more entertaining than the live-action universe. Not hard. <laughs> Not in the case of the original Wonder Woman movie, which was great. It was the director Justin Copeland and Sam Liu. Copeland is an artist who's worked across the DC and Marvel animated series and like in Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes and Avengers Assemble, Guardians of the Galaxy, the TV show, Ben 10, Batman Gotham by Gaslight and The Killing Joke. The co-director shares some of those credits too. Mm Mm-hmm plus 1997's Extreme Ghostbusters cartoon series and Justice League Unlimited, and the Invincible Iron Man animated movie as well. Sorted Scooby-Doo titles uh, and the well-regarded 2009 Wonder Woman animated movie. Now, that one featured Kerry Russell as the voice of Princess Di, (laughs) with Nathan Fillion as Steve Trevor and Rosario Dawson playing Artemis. This time around, and I think we did review that too, back in the day, Dawson voices Wonder Woman this time around, with Jeffrey Donovan playing Steve Trevor. Now, Star Trek's Mr. Worf, Michael Dorn, has a cameo as one of the villains, and I knew it was him as soon as I heard his distinctive voice. And I remember Donovan as one of the Gerhardt family from the Fargo TV series. And of course we know Rosario quite well from her crossover role as Claire Temple. She also playing Ashoshka Tanu. God those Star Wars names will be the death of me. <laughs> In season two of The Mandalorian. So having voiced Wonder Woman across several other DC movies. She's also played Batman, sorry, Batgirl in the Lego movie. So I've been aware of her since her role of uh, Gail in Sin City. And she was also in Josie and the Pussycats.
0: I was going to say I know her from her Josie and the Pussycat days as well.
1: Well, Dawson delivers as Wonder Woman's voice with a range that matches the heavy-duty action and the more reflective moments between stouches. Amongst the writing team, Drew Johnson worked on the Wonder Woman comics, too, in the early 2000s. And the screenplay writer, Marguerite Scott, was also a Guardians of the Galaxy animated series alumni, as well as G.I. Joe and Transformers. All of which is to say that all of these people know pretty much exactly what they're doing. This is the 14th installment in the DC animated universe, 36 overall film amongst their original movies. They've gone down the track quite impressively with these. We've always said that the the uh, animated movies are good if disconnected and frequently more entertaining than the live-action movies, although it's not as good as Patty Je- Jenkins' um, live-action movie with Gal Gadot, of course. Of course. <laughs> There's amusing dialogue in the story. Steve Trevor asks, ''How did you heal me so quickly?'' well, using the special Amazonian technology, but it just looked like a purple healing ray. What do you call it? And Wonder Woman says, well, the purple healing ray. (laughs) There's solid artwork in this for both the backgrounds and for the evocatively realized characters. Some really great animation in the fight scenes, which are suitably bone crunching. (laughs) There's even some momentary nudity, I just realized. It's all very stylized, of course and couched in shadows <laughs> the story doesn't hold many surprises but it's nevertheless very satisfying as well i love any opportunity to play rupert gregson williams dynamically amazonian wonder woman's wrath from director patty jenkins first wonder woman original motion picture soundtrack so pick up your magic lasso and make ready your sword and shield
0: you're listening to a triple r podcast Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
1: Over the top with a track from the terrific Wonder Woman live action soundtrack album composed by Rupert Gregson Williams. So just to uh, encapsulate Wonder Woman bloodlines plot, the US American pilot Steve Trevor's fighter plane is clawed from the sky by dark seeds parademons somewhere over Paradise Island the invisibility-shielded island that is home to the Amazon race. Princess Diana, soon to be known as Wonder Woman, decides that it's time that her people help the outside world, the world of men. And against the wishes of her mother, Queen Hippolyta, leaves the island with Trevor and makes her home in the United States, where she fights to protect humanity. Now, unlike the successful live-action movie, this is set in near-contemporary times, and in this case, the focus is upon Wonder Woman trying to save one particular human, a young woman named Vanessa, who's taken up with a gang of all female supercriminals known as Villainy Incorporated.
0: <laughs> Incorporated.
1: Can Diana reconcile her assumed responsibility for Vanessa with her duty to protect Paradise Island from Attack by Supervillains. Well, she's Wonder Woman. She can multitask. Wonder Woman, Bloodlines, an animated movie, and a pretty decent one on Netflix at the moment. Well, that's about it for Zero G for today. And Joe Brunetti coming up next with Astral Glamour. We will go out with a track by Mr. David Bowie. And I just thought, since we've been talking about robots, that Tin Machine... Might be appropriate. And the Vanessa character is also a cyborg too. (laughs) So this is our weekly Bowie Tin Machine. Right. And next week we will have Megan talking about a game.
0: Yes, I will be talking about After Party. So it's a a game from a studio that I've covered another game of theirs before, so I'll dig into that a little bit. Um, I've got to knock that game off this week, so I'll be very excited to cover that next week. Okay.
1: Okay. Right. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. And thank you, Adam Christo and Simon Imberger, for assisting us with some technical advice. What do they say in the Solarian world when they end transmission?
0: Viewing ended or complete viewing. <laughs> G'day, this is Rob Jan.
1: Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G. A weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.